Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Tuesday, February 2nd, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 43. This episode is brought to you by hashtag FamTaughtMe, my fertility awareness education initiative. You can find all of my fertility awareness blogs on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash FamTaughtMe and follow me on Instagram at FamTaughtMe to learn more. I'm available for one-on-one consultations through my new website, learnbodyliteracy.com, and would love to connect with you. And I'm also the author of the Fam Taught Me Paper Charting Journal and my new book, A Guide to Fertility Awareness as Contraception. So I invite you to check all of that out on my Patreon. You can order these resources directly there. This episode is going to be about how to get pregnant using fertility awareness method. My entrance into fertility awareness was to use it for contraception and wanting to do so when I absolutely did not want to become pregnant. So it wasn't just a, oh, I hope this works kind of thing. It was like, this needs to be on par with the pill in terms of working consistently to prevent pregnancy. And here we are five years later, not a single pregnancy, (laughs) in 67 cycles with 67 ovulations, or in other words, 67 chances to get pregnant. So that's a really amazing thing to witness and to grow in my own power. But this means that when you do want to become pregnant, you are actively making the choice to do so. When you understand your cycle, it's much more difficult to have an accidental pregnancy. And so this means that becoming pregnant with fertility awareness is an intentional form of conception. Now, this isn't new. In my previous podcast, episode 42, I spoke about how sometimes people would choose to terminate a pregnancy depending on their circumstances, or even if their astral birth chart was not going to be favorable. In the same way, I believe that our ancestors understood their fertility better than we do today, and that they probably made intentional choices regarding summoning a new life into this world. So that's what brings me to the modern form of this, which is to use your daily biomarkers to determine your fertility window and your peak fertility days so that you can conceive when your body is ready, your mind is well prepared, and your heart is open. Moving to a culture where we respect the great power of people who menstruate to create life and to learn how to do this more intentionally than accidentally is something that I envision. The global rate of unintended pregnancy is 44%, meaning that just under half the people brought into this world were unplanned. And because our society does not value pregnant people or birthing parents in general, for those people who do have unplanned pregnancies, there's very little resources to support them. Now, this can be detrimental in a number of material and psychological ways, so a greater shift towards body literacy will allow us to avoid pregnancy when it's not desired and to become pregnant with the best intention. There are a few basic principles that we have to make clear before we get into the basics of charting for conception purposes, and really, they're just the principles of fertility awareness. If you're unfamiliar with fertility awareness, you may want to listen to earlier episodes of this podcast first, which go into greater detail about the basics of fertility awareness and the three primary fertility signs. The first basic principle is knowing that your menstrual cycle length is variable, and the boundaries of your fertility window change from cycle to cycle. That's why we use your body's signals to tell us when you become fertile and when your fertility window has concluded. 
The second principle to know is that your cervical fluid is the equivalent of your semen. It's your fertility fluid, and it is 100% necessary to be able to conceive successfully. We call it a diagnostic fertility sign because it tells us in the moment that we observe it that we are able to get pregnant. In contrast, your waking body temperatures, the other main fertility sign, are mostly useless to tell us anything about impending fertility. Now, this is because your temperatures are the result of rising progesterone, and you only make progesterone as the result of ovulation. So your temperature is going to rise only after the egg has been released from the ovary. And this is why we call it a retroactive sign. It tells us about what has already occurred and helps us confirm that ovulation happened on a particular day in corroboration with the cervical fluid and position observations. For some people, and I'm lucky to be a part of this group, we can actually see a slight dip in temperatures before the surge in high temperatures after ovulation. So sometimes there will be a correlation between my temperatures getting a little bit lower and my fluid production increasing. But with that said, I would not consider temperatures as a diagnostic fertility sign in any way, and I wouldn't use temperatures to time conception either. So then there's this discussion about ovulation prediction. Is it possible? You'll see prediction as a word commonly used in fertility marketing. And the answer is, well, yes and no. Ovulation is a hormonal event that can be delayed or suppressed from outside stimuli or environment. So this means that prediction is not really a great way of looking at fertility. And that's why we consider the fertility signs to be diagnostic or something you see in the moment and retroactive or something you see after the fact. So specifically not predictive. This is something that makes the symptothermal methods very different from something like the rhythm method. However, despite this being a semantic issue, there are some ways that people in common terms speak about quote-unquote ovulation prediction or detection. And the first is ovulation predictor kits. So do they work and should you use them? The OPK only tests for luteinizing hormone or LH, and that's the hormone that spikes right before ovulation and actually just triggers the release of the egg. So this spike in luteinizing hormone is not a hard indicator that you will ovulate, though combined with other fertility signs, it is likely. You also could miss an LH surge, which can sometimes only last 12 hours, or your personal peak could be below the sensitivity of the test. Likewise, you could have false LH surges before your real surge, making timing intercourse or insemination for conception confusing when using ovulation predictor kits. The presence of cervical fluid is a much more important sign than the LH surge or a positive OPK test. And this is because sperm must use cervical fluid in order to travel to the egg. People with irregular cycles may find using OPKs tough because of how many days that you'll need to test. And people over 40 will have increased levels of luteinizing hormone at their baseline. And they may, you know, find that the tests are inaccurate. So my take on them is that they are a great additional signal to include in your FAM charts, but I would consider them a secondary or additional fertility sign. In other words, not to be relied upon for timing intercourse or insemination on its own. There are also electronic hormone monitors that utilize urine tests to monitor not just your luteinizing hormone, but also your estrogen levels. 
Now, estrogen levels may be a better indicator of high fertility and impending ovulation, although you can measure estrogen just by learning to observe your cervical fluid. For many reasons, someone may choose to utilize electronic monitors in addition. And there's also saliva tests. They're called salivary ferning tests that are used to look at the change in structure of your saliva around ovulation. Now, if you go way back to episode 13, I discussed the different types of cervical fluid, including a fertile quality fluid that seems to create a fern-like structure under a microscope. So interestingly, our salivary fluid does something similar when estrogen is high. So uh, kits similar to OPKs can be ordered for these salivary ferning tests. And these are other additional fertility markers that will help you understand your fertile window. The three fertility signs used for pregnancy achievement are a little bit different than the three fertility signs used for contraception. So there are three primary fertility signs that we chart in the fertility awareness method. These are cervical fluid, cervical position, and waking body temperature. Each of them can tell us something about whether your body is ready to support a pregnancy and to also see how a pregnancy is progressing. And eventually, it can actually tell you information about your impending labor as well. So let's start with pre-pregnancy information about your cycle. It's recommended that you learn to chart before getting pregnant because you'll have time to analyze the information from the charts and prepare your body as best you can. From your waking body temperature, you can tell if you're ovulating or not. You can tell whether your post-ovulatory luteal phase is long enough in terms of how many days to support an implantation. And you'll also be able to tell whether you've achieved pregnancy through 18 days or more of high temperatures. Pregnancy charts also seem to have a third tier rise in temperature. And temperature will also tell you about the quality of your progesterone levels in early pregnancy. So a miscarriage will also be seen through a sudden drop in temperatures. First, let's talk about the luteal phase. Every cycle, if it's not an anovulatory cycle, has a preovulatory follicular phase and a postovulatory luteal phase. We can measure these two phases through waking body temperature because the result of ovulation is a very obvious and sustained temperature rise. When preparing for intentional conception with fertility awareness method, you'll want to know how your luteal phase health is doing because you need a long enough luteal phase for the implantation to be successful. There's a whole group of people suffering from infertility that aren't having trouble getting pregnant, that means fertilizing the egg, but they are having trouble with getting the egg to successfully implant. This is where your luteal phase length comes in. A typical luteal phase is anywhere from 13 to 16 days in length, whereas a short luteal phase is typically under 10 days long. And an anovulatory temperature pattern is where temperatures are so erratic that no clear luteal phase can be observed. And so this means that no egg was actually released that cycle. There's also the circumstance where progesterone is okay in terms of length and days, but the temperatures themselves seem to hover around your cover line. In other words, they don't look super robust, and the cover line, which is the horizontal line that we draw to delineate the preovulatory low temperatures from the postovulatory high temperatures, the cover line will sometimes intersect with your postovulatory temperatures or even fall below the line on certain days. An outlier here and there is nothing to be concerned about in a chart, 
but having a chart where temperatures are consistently just above or on the horizontal cover line for the entire luteal phase indicates that progesterone needs support. Lastly, you'll be able to use your waking body temperature to identify a delayed ovulation. Remember that the pre-ovulatory follicular phase is variable. This means that ovulation does not always occur on the same cycle day, like cycle day 14 is what everyone's been told, that's when you ovulate, not necessarily, and that a number of factors can delay ovulation. The reason why this is so important has to do with correctly identifying gestational age and eventually due date. A typical calculation is done based off of the last date of your menses. But this means that if you conceived on a delayed ovulation, aka what we would call a long cycle, this will significantly throw off your expected birthing date. So waking body temperatures also offer you so much more accuracy in regards to you understanding when you actually got pregnant and how old your fetus actually is. So thankfully, there is an easy formula to determine your approximate due date. You're going to simply add nine months to the date of your thermal shift minus one week. Okay, here's an example. Your thermal shift occurred on January 7th. That means your temperature rose on January 7th above the cover line. So you're going to add nine months to that, which is October 7th, minus one week, which makes your due date October 1st. So that's the basics of temperature charting. The next thing we need to look at is your cervical fluid and cervical position. In fertility awareness, we look for the point of change. That is the first day that you observe cervical fluid for that cycle. That observation can be by looking at your underwear or toilet tissue, by doing a cervical fluid check with your fingers, or through vaginal sensation. If trying for pregnancy achievement, you'll want to start having sex or insemination on the days where you start to observe cervical fluid. You can have intercourse or perform an insemination on any day where wet cervical fluid and or lubricative vaginal sensation is present. The fertile window basically begins with that fluid, and you can continue having sex and seminating all the way up until the first day of your thermal shift in temperature. But the closer that you are to having the ejaculate inside your vaginal canal on your peak day of cervical fluid, that is the day where you observe the most fertile quality fluid like egg white fluid or watery fluid. That means there's a higher likelihood of successful conception on those days. If you want to know more about cervical fluid in depth and the different types, you can listen to episode 13 where I go over each type of cervical fluid and what it actually does you know, in regards to reproduction. So understanding your cervical fluid pattern and your cervical position is the best way to get pregnant without having to look at other interventions. And there are also some things to consider for insemination specifically, so that it is as successful as any intercourse for conceiving. Now, intravaginal insemination can be done at home, and that has major upsides because there are, you know, a, a lot of upsides to not having to go into, you know, the clinic at this point. And there are two choices when it comes to sperm either fresh or frozen. So fresh sperm have better quantity and quality and also are less costly because there is no storage fee. Um, if you have a sperm donor who is a friend, an acquaintance, or even someone that you've hired privately, you can try to get it delivered fresh on your peak day. That would be the best possible scenario. 
um, but that's not always going to be the case. And frozen sperm aren't half bad either. They do need to survive the thawing process, but that's really the only downside. And most sperm banks will um, screen for uh, sexually transmitted um, infection or disease. So um, you usually are, you know, can rest safely knowing that your uh, sperm that you're using um, is healthy. Now I want to talk about sperm quality for a little bit because we have to talk about the fact that you are going halves on a baby with another person um, and that person's sperm quality and overall health can absolutely affect your pregnancy. So let's break it down. Um, not only are you looking to measure the number of sperm per ejaculate, you also want to know about how many of them are normal shape and size called morphology and what percentage of are rapidly moving forward, that's called motility. A normal amount of sperm is about 250 to 300 million sperm per ejaculate. And if you're charting for four cycles, seeing an ovulation and normal luteal phase lengths, it's time to start looking at your partner's sperm count if you do not conceive within those months um, and you're seeing ovulations in your charts and you are otherwise healthy. You may want to switch from having sex every day of the fertile window or inseminating every day of the fertile window to every other day um, in order to help basically ensure those levels are high enough, uh, sperm levels are high enough. And your partner may also want to abstain from ejaculating for a few days before your peak day to encourage a pregnancy. So sort of doing a little bit of abstinence and semen retention um, for someone who has a low sperm count can oftentimes be beneficial. Um, but the real cornerstone to this is that they also have to be taking care of their health and they also have to be uh, prioritizing their health as well. And particularly even their, their gut microbiome, which you share when you have sex with someone, um, you're actually sharing your groin uh, microbiome with one another. And it's been actually scientifically proven now that the um, partner's microbiome can actually affect a pregnancy and even cause miscarriage. So um, this is definitely not all about you. And just like FAM is used for contraception and it has to be equal between both parties. Both people have to be empowered to a certain extent for it to work at a maximum uh, capacity. It's the same thing with intentional pregnancy. So your partner also needs to be observing the same health regimen that you are. They also need to be working on their sleep patterns, their lifestyle, um, and everything else that goes into putting the best intentions towards uh, new life. So that is, um, you know, besides understanding a little bit more about sperm and, and how they actually work, we know that fertility is becoming um, more in the decline, especially with uh, sperm havers. So that, I think, is something to pay attention to if you are charting and you are healthy and you know that you're ovulating and it's just not happening, that would be the first place I would look, is to actually look at your partner and see what can be done um, to improve their health. So here's what to look for when you first become pregnant. 
Besides 18 days of high temperatures, you may experience other symptoms that seem off, and these may include light bleeding, also called implantation spotting, 8 to 10 days after ovulation, tender breasts or nipples, fatigue, nausea, and creamy cervical fluid observations. And once you know you're pregnant, there are herbs you may want to utilize to ensure your best success for your pregnancy. These include black haw root bark, false unicorn root, lobela leaf, queen of the meadow root, red raspberry leaf, and vitamin E. And if food aversions aren't an issue for you, increase your uptake of nutrient-dense foods, such as egg yolks, liver, cooked fatty fish like salmon, herring, sardines, and fish roe, and cooked shellfish, bone broth, slow-cooked meat on the bone, and cooked vegetables. You may also be attracted to full-fat and fermented dairy products. Cooking most everything is important during pregnancy when the immune system is somewhat suppressed and it helps avoid foodborne illness. I also recommend daily supplementation with vitamin B12, heme iron, magnesium glycinate, zinc picolinate, and DHA. Sometimes, despite our best efforts, a miscarriage occurs. This is a sign from your body that either your body or the pregnancy itself was not ready. Some signs of miscarriage include temperatures continually falling after at least 18 days above the cover line, red bleeding, cramping, abdominal or pelvic pain, headache, joint swelling, nausea and vomiting, fever, sudden fatigue, backache, fainting, and dizziness. After the miscarriage concludes, you may want to take a look at your charts and advise with someone who is well-versed in reading charts to help you analyze it. Before getting pregnant again, it is a chance to address any underlying health issues that may be preventing the pregnancy from moving forward. Similarly, if you're having trouble getting pregnant, your charts will give you a lot of insight into your hormonal patterns and should be able to direct you if something is off balance. Mainly, you'll want to look at the quality and quantity of cervical fluid, the strength and length of the luteal phase, the overall temperature range for possible thyroid issues, and any other body-wide symptoms that may be impacting you. Past contraceptive use is also important to this story, as it may atrophy your ovaries as well as your cervical crypts that produce the cervical fluid. It's important to look at it holistically and let the charts guide you on your next attempts. The amazing thing about the body is that once a menstruation occurs, the body is immediately getting to work starting the process over again, so there's always another chance with the menstrual cycle. I've had the privilege of helping couples get pregnant, and in the past, it's always so joyful to experience this. Uh, the body is truly astounding. Anyone out there who is suffering from infertility and is not sure what to do next, I implore you to pick up a charting book and see if you can get some answers before being pushed into the cascade of interventions that are offered to you at the clinic. And interventions, although they are amazing, can also be very hard on the birthing person's body. And so exhausting all of your options before this is important to the long-term health of everyone involved. And lastly, you can use your waking body temperatures in the last weeks of your pregnancy to look for signs of progesterone dropping. The drops in temperature should coincide with early labor, and this may give you an indication that contractions will begin soon. It's also a good indicator to start an herbal regimen for birth to aid in the process of a smooth and happy labor. We hear the term unexplained infertility a lot, and I think that we'll be hearing it a lot more in the future because of our environment and the future of the planet at large. However, I think we are at a pretty interesting crossroads in terms of biotechnology and also biodata, 
which are becoming more and more of interest to very large data collectors like the Facebooks of the world. And this is because it's a huge industry and it's dominated by women, the biggest consumers. So as amazing as innovation is, I don't think we can move forward with the fertility of the future without a few core things. Those being that, one, that people who menstruate have full autonomy and control over their reproductive healthcare decisions, and two, that body literacy does not get left behind in this fertility technology revolution. A lot of this rhetoric is around freeing the birthing person from their birthing body, basically reinforcing that birthing is a burden. And some people may see it that way, which is their right, but it sets a dangerous precedent about the sacredness of birth and the power that it holds. So I hope this episode was able to get you to think about intentional pregnancy and what I like to call summoning a pregnancy, uh, almost like sex is this ritual met with your fluid and your partner or donor's fluid to create new life. And it's a beautiful process that never ceases to amaze me. I have yet to get pregnant myself, but when I do, I'll be able to know so much more as I move through the process because of fertility awareness. So I'm excited to see how charting can guide me through the journey, and I hope that it can do the same for you. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with someone who might benefit from it. You can find my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most recently YouTube. And if you can take a moment to subscribe, rate, review me, all that good stuff, I'd really appreciate it as it helps more people find the show. This episode is brought to you by my fertility awareness education initiative, hashtag fam taught me. You can subscribe to my Patreon to gain access to all member services at www.patreon.com famtaughtme and follow me on Instagram at famtaughtme to learn more. I'm available for one-on-one consultations and I've just published a book as well as a paper fam charting journal so you can head over to my Patreon or to my socials to find out more info. This concludes episode 43 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.